It was the bubble to rival all bubbles. In March of 2000, the tech-heavy NASDAQ stock index hit its dot-com era peak. It rose from under 1,000 in 1995 to over 5,000 just five years later. But by the fall of 2002, it was nearly all gone, along with many of the once high-flying dot-com unicorns. Even the well-anchored blue-chip companies weren't unscathed. Investor losses were in the trillions. It would take 15 years for the NASDAQ to reclaim the 5,000 mark, and today it sits near 8,000, an 80% increase in just five years. Tech stocks are back in the headlines as the sector to keep an eye on. But with euphoria around tech having backfired once before, is it time to take the money and run? On this episode of The Bid, we speak with Tony Kim, Portfolio Manager and Technology Sector Lead for BlackRock's Fundamental Active Equity Group. We'll talk about what makes today different from history and why tech is a breeding ground for innovation. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We hope you enjoy. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today on The Bid. Thank you for having me. I love podcasts. Pleasure to be on. Well, we're happy to have you on. And Tony, I was reflecting back on my own investment experience. I think I bought my first mutual fund back in the late 90s. And it was a mutual fund that targeted companies that had high growth rates. And in retrospect, it probably owned a number of tech stocks because that's what was growing. The late 90s boom turned into the bust of the early 2000s. So for me personally, it's been really interesting to see tech back in the headlines here over the last couple of years. So how does the tech sector differ today versus what you and what I invested in two decades ago? I think tech has permeated all aspects of our society. And so when you look back at 2000, it all seems kind of primitive today. But when I really think of it, it's this notion of order of magnitude change. And so let's just compare back 20 years ago to today. 2000, there were half a billion internet users. There's now close to 5 billion. So that's 10x. The number of computing platforms, there was one, really, the PC, a couple hundred million. Now there's PCs, there's smartphones, there's IoT, and there's cloud. So that's tens of billions of things and platforms and devices. So that's 100x, at least. The number of wireless networks, you know, you had 2G, now you have 5G. That's three generations of cellular the transistor density, which is a measure of the density of the performance of the transistors in a silicon chip, tens of millions back then, now tens of billions. So that's like a 1,000x. And the leading chip geometry of 130 nanometers is shrunk down to 7 nanometers. So that's 18x. So when you think of that, you put that in totality, it's this order of magnitude change in 20 years. And as an investor... That's translated into a sheer explosion in a number of companies. The diversity, the dynamism, and the sheer ambition of these companies is pretty unprecedented. It's clear you have to be good at math if you've been following the tech sector for the last two decades, just given the order of magnitude, I think was the term you used, of the change that we've seen. It feels like a lot of that change has been a result of the FANG stocks, which it's often used to refer to Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. They really get the bulk of the attention. But take us beyond FANG. There must be other companies that are part of this bigger tech movement. I think for the last 10 to 15 years, it's definitely been all about FANG, and they have personified the market capitalization of tech. 
I would also add Microsoft, Alibaba, and Tencent, maybe call it the Super 8. But like you said, tech is a lot more than these eight companies. There are nearly 1,300 public tech companies globally that I'm looking at. And then there's hundreds of late-stage private companies that I'm also looking at. So you're talking well over 1,600-plus companies in tech beyond the Super 8. So the diversity of companies that are out there, the share number is a lot more prevalent than in the past and the amount of funding that's come into the sector. You know, if we also take a step back and look at tech by era, and if you look back in history, every decade generally has kind of been defined by a new era, right? In the 1990s, it started in mainframe, a lot of Japanese companies. In 2000, it was the PC and the fiber optic boom, telecom companies. And then in 2010, it was the smartphone and internet companies. And today, it's about cloud. And you also see the emergence of some of the large Chinese companies. And so this diversity of 15, 16, 1700 tech companies out there, something is going to emerge. There's no doubt about that. So I think there is a diversity of companies and history has shown there will be new leadership. And when you talk about new companies and new leaders, the word disruption comes to mind. It feels like that word is in our vocabulary these days, largely due to the tech sector. So what in your mind is the next big thing that we can expect from tech? And perhaps as an add-on to that, what do you see the impact of technology being on other sectors of the economy? It seems one of the defining era for the next 10 years is going to be AI and data. I think disruption is, to me, a lot of it is built on incremental layers from past. Or, you know, foundations of tech of what you see as disruption today are really set on prior investments. So we go back to the 2000 era, I mean, that laid the foundation of the rails of the internet that built out the telecom and fiber network. And once you had that, along with that came continual development in silicon. And that led to the smartphone. And then you had these 3G, 4G networks, which built wireless networks on top of the linking the fiber networks with the parallel development in chip computational power, which then led to new software, new architectures, which then led to the cloud. And then finally, if AI is defining the next decade, you know, AI research has been around for 30 or 40 years, but it needed the fiber networks, it needs the cellular networks, it needs the computational power, and you need new software. All of these things coming together right now, seemingly in a big bang, you could call it. And in terms of tech moving Beyond, you brought up the notion of tech beyond other sectors, two paths of evolution for looking at tech. One is kind of the core tech, and then the other is what I call applied tech. Within the core tech, it's silicon and software. And it's in this applied tech where you'll see a lot of these new industries. These are taking these core technologies and applying them to things like transportation, autonomous driving, or construction, kind of reimagining value chain, or real estate, reimagining the value chain using tech to kind of build new models for healthcare, farming, customer service, on and on. And so you see this expansion of what I call taking these core technologies and applying them to new industries. In listening to you talk about AI, that seems to be that there are a number of different parts of this value chain, a number of different companies that are involved in the broader AI investment opportunity? Because you mentioned silicon, you mentioned software, you mentioned data. So is it fair to say there's no one company that does all this? You sort of have a number of different ways to invest in this theme? Yeah, that's correct. This is a 
concerted effort, all of the component parts need to be kind of in unison, right? You have dozens, hundreds of companies working on software, different parts of software. You've got new companies in Silicon. You know, this is the first time in 20 years, I'd say, in Silicon Valley that I've seen kind of this explosion of new Silicon startups. I mean, there have been so few semiconductor companies that have come public, but you're seeing a new creation, a new Cambrian explosion, if you will, of compute. Then you have all these companies that are using the AI. You know, obviously you got in probably over a dozen autonomous driving companies, et cetera. So there is no one answer. And then AI is going to be used in kind of everything. Tony, let's switch gears. I want to ask you about cloud computing because I know that you feel that cloud computing will take over or could take over the traditional sort of on-premise infrastructure that you know, companies use for technology. So what are the advantages to cloud computing? I think there's many different aspects as to what cloud computing is, but I think one of the core tenets of cloud is this notion of not having to do it yourself, right? There's this DIY nature of IT that has been the case for the last 30 years, at least, where companies all around the world have kind of built their own technology data center and their own stack and then had armies of people building and running their own IT And I think with the advent of cloud, one central advantage is that you can shift a lot of this do-it-yourself nature to kind of a rental nature where you can outsource a lot of this infrastructure to the cloud. This is a concept that's been around for a long time in other industries, i.e. the utility industry, but now it's come to tech. So that is one advantage. The other is once you have this kind of infrastructure in the cloud, the applications that run on top of this cloud infrastructure the ease and speed in which the flexibility to make changes and get software up and running, this is kind of uh, foundations to cloud. And it's really just opened up beyond just the application and the infrastructure, just kind of how software is written. I think there's just been a kind of a revolution, you could say, and an explosion in software in terms of how it's built, how it's developed, and how it's consumed and deployed. And the cloud has enabled... You know, I think Mark Andreessen uh, coined it, you know, software is eating the world. And I think the underpinnings of this new cloud infrastructure has enabled this to really blossom and accelerate even. And as you mentioned this, the word that comes to mind is efficiency. It, It seems like cloud computing helps companies become more efficient. And as I also think about efficiency, I think about the 5G conversation. It feels like the physical infrastructure to support this technology really has a ways to go. So how close are we to the broad deployment of 5G? And is there a way now to invest in the opportunities that 5G is going to create? I think 5G deployment is imminent. We started with end of last year with Korea and Japan. And now this year it's U.S. and China. And then later will be Europe. And then later after that will be emerging markets. We're very much in the very early stage of deployment. You know, if you look around, I don't know too many people with a 5G smartphone. I like to deconstruct 5G. I often like to also work backwards. Like I often think, when will we have a 5G phone and do something with it? I think that really comes in earnest end of next year. I always think Apple will kind of define that. And I do think Apple will have a 5G smartphone by next fall. And if we work back in order, so that's when real consumers really get access to 5G phones at scale. When can you start investing in this? And, you know, actually it started last year. You know, you got to first test the network. You got to test all the equipment that you're going to 
put into the network. Carriers don't want to be spending tens of billions of dollars on equipment that's not ready. So you got to test it. Then you got to have the fiber and the interconnect and the networks all built out. And then you put in these 5G base stations. And then you'll have phones. And then those phones will be running, and that'll lead to more network loading. And so then you'll need to build more towers and more data centers. And then eventually, you know, you're going to have all of these new use cases for 5G, all of these new 5G IoT or self-driving car. So I kind of break it down that way. And then I say, well, how do we invest? We need to invest in, I think, what I call the first phase, the building of the infrastructure before we can have that. And then you can have the phones and then the applications come on top. What's interesting, when you said that you think Apple might have a 5G phone by the end of next year, I started to work backwards myself and think about how far in advance will people be lined up outside the Apple store to get their hands on a 5G phone. But you touched on the U.S. and China as being sort of next in getting the deployment of 5G. Isn't there a rivalry between the U.S. and China when it comes to 5G? Is there something there that we need to be aware of, or does this have an impact on tech stocks at all? That's an interesting question. I think there is a quote-unquote rivalry in the press on 5G. Actually, it's more deep-rooted than just 5G. And 5G just so happens to be kind of, you know, the political football. The core root of the problem is this notion of IP ownership and IP protection. You know, the U.S. wants China to observe international laws on IP rights and protection and stealing of IP. On the Chinese perspective, I think China covets independence. They don't want to be dependent on the U.S. And again, it goes back to silicon and software. Let's deconstruct this, what I call the IP hole that China has. For example, for 5G, when Huawei was banned or put on the entity list, the U.S. government banned the key suppliers into Huawei. This crippled Huawei. So what do you need to ship a 5G phone or a 5G base station for Huawei? Well, you need processors. That's Intel and ARM and AMD, and that's not Huawei. Then you need these things called FPGAs that are often in base stations. These are U.S. companies, Xilinx and Intel. And then you need radio frequency chips that go into these base stations for 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, RF. Again, those are U.S. companies, Skyworks Corvo. These are not Chinese companies. You need AI acceleration. You need silicon for GPUs and AI accelerators. Again, most of these are U.S. companies. And then to make these chips, you need semiconductor capital equipment. And these are lithography, etch, deposition, process control. These are U.S. companies. These are Dutch companies, some Japanese companies, not Chinese companies. And then you need operating systems to ship around the world. You need Android or iOS. Again, these are dependent on the U.S. And then you need memory. And again, these are Japanese and U.S. companies. And so when you tie it all up together, they have massive holes in IP in a lot of these areas. And when these suppliers are not able to ship to Huawei, this cripples them. And so the Chinese do not want to be put in this situation, so they're trying desperately to build their own capability. But the problem is it's not just money. China has money. They have will. They have ambition. The question is, do you have the IP to do it all? And so, again, I think this is kind of the give and take here. It's this battle of IP ownership, IP protection. China wants some of these things, but they need to play by the rules, and the U.S. is playing hardball. And so that's how, in a nutshell, you asked me about 5G, and um, 5G is just kind of the tip of the spear of what the root issue is, in my opinion. 
And it feels like a good time to ask you, Tony, with everything you've said, if you had to sum up the tech sector in one sentence, what would it be? Yeah, if I were to answer that question, Oscar, I'd say tech's about creative destruction. I uh, think tech is like biology, like nature. You know, you grow fast, you mature, and then you die. And there's always a new company coming to take your spot. In fact, I've tracked in the last five years over 200 IPOs in tech globally. History has shown us that there will always be new companies. So I think it's my duty, I guess, to continue to find and seek those companies out. Okay, so constant evolution is key. Tony, I'm going to end with a rapid fire round where I'm going to ask you some more personal questions if you're ready. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so you're a self-professed podcast nerd. Besides the bid, what other podcasts are you listening to right now? Oh, you can take away the term podcast nerd. I am just a nerd, a geek, whatever you want to say. I was looking at my phone. I think I had 115 podcasts on there right now. I like history, so I'm listening to Revisionist History. Malcolm Gladwell, I love that. listening to this thing called Noble Blood. I love... uh, these two podcasts, Napoleon Podcasts and The Life of Caesar, these are Magnus Opus, 50, 100 podcasts long, specifics on those guys. I listen to some things in tech, A16Z, This Week in Startups, and then maybe a sports one. I listen to this transfer window on uh, European football and the economics of it, I guess. So it really varies. I think you made it through 10% of your list. If you had to start a podcast, what would it be about? My own podcast. Wow. I don't want to recreate so many great history podcasts that are out there. I mean, I don't have a PhD in Roman architecture or whatever. Well, I love documentaries, and I'm a deconstructionist. So I'd love to maybe do a documentary-style episodic series maybe on economic history, like what was the spice trade between England and India or who funded the Renaissance, even maybe mix it with something modern, like talk about deconstruct like an autonomous car company. What really would that entail? So you're the kind of guy that takes the computer apart to see how it works, which I can assure you is the opposite of what I do. And Tony, speaking of other interests, you're also a history buff. I understand you own an Enigma machine, which I've seen the movie. This was used by the Germans during World War II to transmit coded messages. So how did you acquire one of these, and do you actually use it? I don't have the original German Enigma, but I did find one that was a kind of modern reinterpretation with some open source software. So you can actually program it. And I did buy it because I think this machine, you know, obviously the Germans used to encrypt messages, but it was also kind of, this spawned the, I think, the computer. And this is what, uh, as you saw in the movie, what Alan Turing built, Christopher, to decode this German encryption machine in World War II, which led to basically, you know, the dawn of computing. But I did buy it so that I can teach my children maybe the basics of encryption. And on that note, what one piece of old technology do you think will make a comeback? I don't know if it's the Enigma machine. It feels a little antiquated. Is there something else that comes to mind? Yeah, in general tech, things don't really come back. I'll go back to World War II. The British used radar, and I think radar is coming back. It's coming back in self-driving cars. Every Tesla has a bunch of radar, and all these cars will have radar in it. And I'll make another one. This is, again, it's something been around. It's the periodic table elements. You will continue to see a lot of these rare earths, these exotic materials, composites. It has big impact on kind of some of the extensions of where silicon is going and some of these alternative non-silicon materials. So material science is back. It's already been back. 
Well, Tony, your wealth of information. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Bid. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 230 the material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.